Hello, and welcome to another episode of Changing Climate, Changing Migration, the podcast from the Migration Policy Institute that looks at how climate change is affecting human movement. My name is Julian Haddam, and I'm your host of this podcast and the editor of the Migration Information Source, which is MPI's in-house online magazine. This podcast is part of our special focus on climate change and migration, which goes along with a series of articles available online at migrationpolicy.org climate. The relationship between climate change and migration is complex, but one of the things that seems clear is that there is not a direct line between particular changes in the climate and an individual's decision to migrate. When climate or environmental change impacts people's movement, it often happens through other intervening variables as part of a broader universe of factors. A lot of these mechanisms are pretty complicated, but one that makes a lot of sense is food. Especially for communities that depend on farming and livestock, environmental change can create problems for their livelihood, which affects their food security. Or, to put it more simply, people who might have been dependent on growing food for themselves or to sell because of climate change now become less sure where their next meal is coming from. That might be a good reason to move someplace else. So to talk about this today, I am joined by Megan Carney. Megan is an assistant professor at the University of Arizona and of its Center for Regional Food Studies. She has written a lot about the intersection of migration, food, and climate change, and I am very excited to welcome her on. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's start with food. When scholars talk about migration, they tend to use a few different overarching categories, such as labor migration, which is people moving from one place to another for work, or humanitarian migration, which is refugees, asylum seekers. But we don't really tend to talk a lot about food as a component of migration. What role does food and food insecurity play in people's decisions to migrate? And why might we want to pay closer attention to that? That's such a good question. And food is so prominent in understanding contemporary migration patterns in the world. So I would first, I guess, draw our attention to what's been happening both environmentally and economically around the world over the past few decades. Uh, For starters, I think about migration both structurally and relationally. Um, So when you alluded to this broader universe of variables, Um, That's exactly what I'm speaking to. So in the past few decades, uh, we have witnessed the unraveling um, effects of neoliberal economic policies, primarily in the global south. And these policies, including um, such things as free trade agreements, um, deregulation of markets, uh, privatization of services, This is a very familiar kind of narrative um, for those of us in the social sciences, thinking about the ways that welfare states have been dismantled, um, primarily because of corporate agendas and private interests dictating the parameters of our global economy and within that food systems. So thinking about the effects of neoliberal economic policies, structural adjustment programs, these have targeted or have had the most acute effects for people who depend on the land um, for their livelihood. So agrarian-based livelihoods. And many, we're we're talking millions of people in the past few decades alone have migrated from rural to urban areas, 
have migrated from the global south to the global north because of dispossession, both well, debt, dispossession, and displacement from those livelihoods. And um, you know, it's often talked about as, as economic migration, but I actually contest that framing. Um, people don't think of their lives in terms of wages. We cannot reduce humans to uh, being wage earners. Um, they think about their lives, we all think about our lives in much more complex terms. So we think about the social obligations we have, the obligations to kin, um, food. Uh, so these immediate sort of material needs and also our affective or relational kinds of obligations. Um, so I actually think that the repeated sort of invocation of so-called economic migrants is in many ways a form of, of violence in itself um, because it dismisses all the other variables that uh, re require migration as a necessary strategy of survival. So that's on the one hand, sort of the economic um, dynamics that have been unfolding and affecting people's lives um, in, in what, for the most part, in the global South. Um, but environmentally, we have also been observing over the last few decades uh, these global climactic changes that are also rendering people's livelihoods, land-based livelihoods, untenable. Um, and, and so when we talk about environmental displacement, we're often talking about food-related displacement, people no longer able to feed themselves. Um, and so, you know, looking at the latest figures, for instance, from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, almost a billion people worldwide are experiencing chronic hunger and food insecurity. Um, that's probably a conservative estimate. Here in the U.S., we have... Um, close to 50 million households um, experiencing or reporting chronic food insecurity. Again, those numbers are probably quite conservative, especially in light of the pandemic and the effects of the pandemic on uh, national food insecurity. Um, so um, I'll, I'll pause there. But this is why, for me, it's so important um, that we do foreground food and, and talking about food insecurity and how that is shaping um, patterns of migration around the world, um, and also why we we also need to bring much more attention to integrating policies um, that have to do with economic development, migration, food systems, because at present those as realms of policy making are very much compartmentalized and not at all integrated. So, so let's bring climate and environmental change into this then, right? Um, you talked about agrarian communities as one of the people who um, is affected by uh, food insecurity and, and uh, other problems in recent years, I guess. Is our agrarian communities, when it as it relates to climate change, some of the people we're mostly talking about here? Um, or I guess, uh, how does climate change work on specific, how do the impacts of climate change work on helping individuals and in which communities to decide whether or not to migrate? What kind of decision-making process, I guess, goes goes on in that um, situation to the extent that you can describe sure. it? And what does that look sure. like? Yeah. Well, we could we could talk broadly about patterns um, observed of, of drought and desert, uh, desertification, um, as well as catastrophic weather events such as uh, hurricanes and storm surges and floods um, that are uh, disrupting food systems in 
regions of the world where I work or look at migration from. So Mexico and Central America, as well as Sub-Saharan Africa, um, these are regions that are feeling these acute um, environmental disturbances that have an impact on land-based livelihoods. Um, but as an anthropologist, um, I, I collect people's stories um, and and put those stories into circulation um, to bring attention right to people's suffering um, and the effects of structural inequalities in people's everyday lives. So, in my own work, um, specifically in my work with with women who have migrated from Central America and rural parts of Mexico to the United States in the last couple of decades, when we when we spoke about their experiences of migration and their decisions to migrate, um, they almost um, invariably invoked this refrain of back there, there was nothing to eat. Um, and that that was kind of the the refrain with which they began these very elaborate narratives of migration. But it always began with the relationship they had, very intimate relationship they had with feeding and eating. Um, and so when mm. that relationship was disrupted, that and and chronically, right, over a, over the span of many weeks or many months, um, that was ultimately what prompted them to, to frame things as they had no other option but to migrate. It was a survival strategy to support themselves and their families. So um, I think it's especially important for understanding women's migration, um, because if we look at uh, sort of the gender division around feeding um, and care work, uh, women disproportionately around the world are charged with this labor or burdened um, disproportionately by this labor. So it, it does tell us something about sort of the gendered dynamics of migration, um, differences between men and women's migration and sort of the decision making that goes on. Um, but in terms of looking at those women's narratives and, and what were they alluding to uh, back there, there was nothing to eat. Um, they they went into more detail about um, drought after drought, right? Um, seasons of, of season after season of harvest, um, a failed harvest because of drought or other um, environmental disturbances. And so these, these land-based livelihoods that were increasingly threatened by environmental conditions, changing environmental conditions, but also because of what was happening um, within local markets. So trade agreements like the North American Free, Free Trade Agreement, uh, it, is, it is well known that that agreement had uh, massive economic impacts on local markets in rural Mexico um, and made it very difficult for small farmers um, to compete with imports from the U.S., primarily corn, um, but other but other subsidized foods as well. That's that's great. I, I really, I, I hate to say love, but that that phrase back there, there was nothing to eat. I think it's incredibly evocative and very, um, very telling. And yeah, that, that's, that's and, and tragic in a lot of ways too. And so I guess, and to what extent is that like a literal phrase or in other words, I mean, to what extent do, is the um, lack of livelihood, lack of, um, being able to provide to care for the family or, you know, for oneself and one kin and broader network, like l literally about food or to what extent is that kind of a 
a metaphor or a symbolic representation of um, broader carrying responsibilities. Does that yeah. make sense? So I guess is, is food actually the literal thing or is it a stand in for these broader carrying systems? It's, it's both. And um, yeah, okay. it, it both literally in terms. So like thinking about food insecurity and what, how we define food insecurity or measure it. Um, we're not just talking about calories in versus calories out. We're, we're also talking about food that's been obtained through um, what are considered culturally appropriate means, um, and the food itself is deemed socially acceptable um, in terms of, you know, culinary preferences, taste preferences. Uh, um, but yes, also symbolically, um, the the relationships that uh, that are cemented through the exchange, preparation, um, sharing of food, um, and food as a site of care among many other caring uh, forms of care. So uh, yeah, I, I elaborate on kind of the, the metaphor and literal meanings of, um, mm -hmm. this, of this phrase in, in my book, The Unending Hunger, Tracing Women and Food Insecurity Across Borders. And so you talk about, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about like how we define food insecurity, as you yeah. mentioned, because it's not really, as I understand it, a binary concept. You either are food secure or food insecure, right? right? There's more of a scale of insecurity. So I guess, is there a tipping point uh, at which migration becomes an increasing, increasingly attractive option? Or I guess, what are the conditions under which high degrees of food insecurity um are a strong enough push that make attract that make migration become increasingly attractive or which compel migration uh, from what you have seen? Uh, so, I mean, that's a great question. And, and I, so yes, food insecurity is multidimensional. Um, we cannot sort of reduce it to any one variable. Um, it is, it has political, economic, social dimensions and environmental dimensions, of course. Um, and there are many definitions and approaches to measuring food insecurity um, that are the US Department of Agriculture has its own um, classification system and, and tools for measurement. Uh, the FAO has its own. So um, as an anthropologist, I mean, I think about uh, sort of food insecurity in, from a historical perspective. Um, so you know, how has the human relationship to food and diet changed throughout millennia? Um, and so actually it gets really interesting then putting that kind of thinking into conversation with migration um, from a historical perspective and how not just humans, but all animals have relied on migration as a survival strategy. Um, so there is, if you know, if we go back to before there were even the earliest states, I've been reading some James Scott recently and thinking about early state formation. But prior to that, humans uh, being hunter, foragers, um, migration was a survival strategy. If, if one habitat no longer was providing the resources that were necessary to one's survival, then you, you migrated um, and sought other environments where there were there were more resources in abundance. Um, it was not until the introduction of early states and domestication and uh, reliance on primarily grain based diets that um, people that migration actually became perceived as a threat 
to the state consolidating power and controlling a population within a demarcated territory. Um, and so at that time, actually, those who were not living within the context of these early state formations um, were considered threats to state power and um, labeled as barbarians and 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 other things. Um, so, for, so I'm <laughs> of course like we're we're talking about many generations of sort of this changing, evolving relationship between humans and um, our food system. And, and related, I guess, to that of the decision making process is as you know historically with the rise of like farming or whatever uh migration is serves many purposes it is not simply this there is no value in the land here we have to go to another place and get value from the land there uh i mean migration can do a lot of things for people right people people can migrate as a way to send back money to their origin community to make it more resilient invest in newer technologies uh they can you know uh, migrate for seasonally migrate like maybe go during lean times if the summer, mm-hmm. poor rainy season, whatever, uh, then you come back. Uh, but at, sometimes people migrate for good. They like start over from scratch. They say, the place I'm in is not working for me. Let's start over in place X. Uh, in s- situations that you have seen, what of those strategies, how does migration work in these contexts um, when food production and food uh, inability to feed oneself and one family um rises to such a level that migration becomes an attractive option. What does that migration do? I guess a question yeah. is my question. Well, so I I have theorized migration as a strategy for um, subverting what I call the biopolitics of food insecurity. This, this notion that cap, uh, neoliberal capitalism has allowed for capital and commodities to move um, across borders without restriction, whereas labor and, and human bodies, right, are restricted in their movement across borders. Yeah. And with that, um, so food, it as an import, as a commodity, um, moves across borders, um, but because of really what we might think about as sort of the, the political economy um, of different settings around the world, people have uneven life chances and uneven access to that food uh, to, to sustain themselves and lead uh, a healthy, full life. Um, so then migration is a means of subverting that regime, the, the biopolitics of food insecurity. And uh, specifically for, for women who are migrating, um, many of them, um, those who I have worked with uh, over the years, in my ethnographic field work, have um, been able to sustain households across borders. Um, so many women migrate without their children and um, leave children in the care of elders, um, of, of grandparents or siblings. Um, and sometimes or oftentimes um, have additional children um, upon sort of recreating the conditions of life in another setting. So in the US, um, women will perhaps have children and then they are caring for children across borders, um, attending to the needs of children um, in in different national settings. So 
it's, you know, how, in terms of how successful women feel in being able to attend to the needs of households um, across these, you know, disparate geographic settings um, is sort of, is, is, is somewhat ambiguous. Um, and I say that because this is not only true for women I've worked with in the U.S., it's true for migrants I've um, worked with in Southern Europe and Italy and on the island of Sicily who feel um, this, this sense of disappointment or disillusionment with migrating, um, realizing that their, the conditions of their everyday existence haven't really improved all that much um, and that they are still, they are still struggling um, to make ends meet and the aspirations that they may have had of sending remittances home um, or to their places of origin um, seems still somewhat out of reach. It's, which uh, I guess leads me to, I guess, what will be my last question, um, which I like to think about policies and policy interventions and uh, ways to make situations better, I guess, writ large. Um, so, I, you know, we talked about a lot of these issues and some, some of the problems and concerns that individuals, communities are facing. What efforts and policies that are underway or could be underway to um, mitigate some of the harms that are that we've described, uh, either at NGOs or at international bodies, government level, um, to e- either make migration, um, make people feel like they do not necessarily have to migrate if they do not want to, or to give people control, I guess, over, over their choices and their food and reduce food insecurity writ large. Um, what, yeah, what sort of policies are underway? What sort of programs are underway? And what should be underway that uh, are not necessarily out there in the world? Okay. Um, well, I mean, I think, first of all, let's, let's just talk about the food system for a moment, the global industrial food system, and not forget that the food system accounts for a significant share of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the estimates range somewhere between uh, 25 to fi- up to 50% from industrial agriculture and everything associated with it, transportation, distribution systems, et cetera. Um, so, uh, you know, thinking about the food system, um, so disruptions to people's relationship with food, rendering conditions of food insecurity, and how that intersects with the climate impacts of a particular uh, set of institutional arrange- arrangements that make up today's global industrial food system. Um, so we, we, we do need policies that are holding all of these truths together in, in one space, um, rather than, as I said previously, as they are somewhat compartmentalized today. But we also um, need to hold those truths um, together with thinking about migration and the causes of human displacement across environments. So um, I think when policymakers talk about migration, they're often thinking about migration as this like homogenous process um, or homogenous across Mm. time and space. And this is why it's so important for me in the work that I do to constantly kind of hold this analytical frame of um, intersectionality. So the ways that experiences through through policy formations um, have differential effects on people's lives 
articulating with things like race, class, gender, citizenship, disability, age, um, all of these things, all of these variables matter. And so we have to nuance, have, have nuance in the kinds of policies that are put forward to attend to people's needs um, as they um, exist differentially across time and space. Um, you know, going, going back to thinking about the, the impacts of the organization or arrangements, right, that make up our global food system. Um, we have to we have to realize or acknowledge that that this system is working exactly as it was designed. So you know sometimes you'll hear that our food systems are broken, um, and I um, have taken many cues from critical race scholars um, who study the food system and and point out that actually this food system is not broken. It's working as it was designed um, and it is reproducing these structures of power and privilege and inequality. Um, and so if we, if we want meaningful change, we really have to um, rethink uh, what is the ultimate goal of, um, of kind of any sort of policy. Are we reproducing these relationships on a global scale that trace back to colonialism and um, are consistent with neoliberal capitalism and um, favoring the interests of corporations? Or are we actually um, foregrounding people and uh, the democratic participation of people who, who do practice land-based livelihoods? And um, Whose, whose labor is so integral to, um, to food and food systems. So, um, you know, I think that's, I think that is really just important to keep in mind in, in making any kinds of policy changes is just how, how much of the current system is not sustainable and needs to be dismantled before we can rebuild in a way that values human lives. Um, and so in that sense, uh, any kind of agenda for uh, food justice on a global scale should be um, in conversation with any kind of policies that are attempting to address address migration. This has been a super fascinating discussion, and I really appreciated it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this opportunity. Megan Carney is an anthropologist and assistant professor at the University of Arizona, and she's the director of the Center for Regional Food Studies there. She's also the author of the book, The Unending Hunger, Tracing Women and Food Insecurity Across Borders, uh, which touches on a lot of the issues that we discussed here today, as well as the forthcoming book called Island of Hope, Migration and Solidarity in the Mediterranean, which will be out in May. Uh, she's also on Twitter. You're going to follow her there at Megan underscore A underscore Carney. Migration is a pretty complicated process. And when we talk about how climate change impacts migration, a lot of times we're talking about how the climate affects something else, like access to food, which in turn impacts or prompts migration. 
As Megan noted, there are a lot of intervening variables and a lot of factors that push and pull on one another. So in one sense, this makes the conversation much more difficult because it's harder to trace precisely how an individual storm or drought affects someone's decision to migrate. But looked at another way, it also opens the door to a much broader discussion because the climate is the backdrop for a lot of components of our lives. So when the climate changes, it impacts our livelihoods, our politics, our economic systems, and it even impacts how we eat or how sure we are that there is enough food to go around. If you enjoyed this conversation, please check out other episodes of Changing Climate, Changing Migration. The podcast is available online at migrationpolicy.org podcasts or you can subscribe to the podcast service of your choice. A companion series of articles is available on our website at migrationpolicy.org slash climate. This episode was produced by Kenya Guerrero and made available by Lisa Dixon with oversight from Michelle Middlestad. The music you have heard is called Touch by Patrick Patrickios. My name is Julian Haddam. I'll see you next time.